You probably have uh, heard this phrase before, choose your battles wisely. <laughs> it just is some encouragement knowing that uh, we face a lot of different battles or conflicts, uh, things that maybe we disagree with or things that are opposed to us, and, and we want to take those things on, but we're advised, choose your battles wisely, because you don't always win all your battles. And if we were fighting every battle that we were uh, confronted with, we probably would be drained of a lot of energy and enthusiasm, too. So it's really telling us, focus on those things that are really important and fight for those. You're probably familiar with this phrase, too. Fight the good fight of faith. It's reminding us about what is important to us our faith in God. That's the phrase that the Apostle Paul used when he was encouraging the young pastor Timothy in his ministry. He said, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now Paul told Timothy to fight that battle of faith after he had just been telling him about the attacks that are and will be made against Christians. He was talking about the attacks that come through false teachers. Those people who, who twist and, and turn the, the scriptures and deny the truth of God that can have the result of destroying our faith. But, but between that and right before this verse, Paul also said to Timothy to warn people against about a love of things in this world, materialism and money, because he said that too has destroyed the faith of people. So you see, between false teachings and the things of this world, we're in a fight. Continuing with our series of messages entitled Victorious Living in the Last Times, today we want to take up that call from Paul to fight the good fight of faith. He tells us about it several times and in several of his different letters. And the section that I picked today was from his second letter to the Thessalonian Christians where he was encouraging them, as we heard before, to be ready for the return of the Lord, and now he gives us some of that strategy. Here's what Paul writes. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you. Now, some Bible translations take that phrase, from the beginning, and translate it as first fruits, and I'll explain that later. That because God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel. That you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts 
and strengthen you in every good deed and word. We all like to hear uh, good news, and we all like to hear uh, messages of victory, right? So for a few weeks ago, we heard a great story of victory when the Houston Astros won the World Series. This was the first time in their 60-some year history as a ball club that they finally won the World Series. And of course, last year, you remember that the Chicago Cubs finally won the World Series after 100 years of not winning. Wow, those were great stories of victory, huh? And sometimes people get real excited when they hear about the, the victory of their uh, particular political candidate and now think yeah, everything is going to be fine because so-and-so is in office. Or we get excited and should be encouraged when we hear of our armies winning victories over the enemy. But we also get excited about little personal victories we hear about too, like if the doctor tells you, you're cancer-free. Or kids, if the dentist tells you, hey, you don't have any cavities this time. <laughs> when we hear those messages of victory, we get excited. Paul just gave us a message of victory, and he called it gospel. Gospel was a Greek word that meant, here's a message of victory. Paul uses that word gospel 74 times in the Bible. He obviously was very happy to tell people this news, that there's a victory that's been won, and it's yours. That's gospel. Now, if I came to you this morning and said, hey, I want to tell you about a victory. The government has decided that no one will ever have to pay taxes again. What would your reaction be? Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> Where'd you hear that? We want some evidence that the victory is real. And that was true in Paul's day, too. If a messenger showed up in town with a message of victory from the army, they wanted some evidence that it was true. That's what Paul is giving us in these words, evidence. He says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. Isn't that interesting? Here we are at the dawn of Thanksgiving week, and he's telling us something that should be on our Thanksgiving list, our fellow believers. But he tells us why we can be thankful for them. He says, because they're loved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He's giving us the evidence that the victory is won. He's talking about God's love in Jesus. And there is no greater love than that, right? God showed his love in that he himself came into this world. God sent his son into this world to, to live for us and then, and then to die the penalty that we deserve for our sins and to rise from the dead to defeat death. That's victory. That's gospel. It's summed up very well in a very familiar passage, John 3.16, and some people like to spell the word gospel as they recite it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's victory. 
Others have summed it up this way. God created us to be with him, but our sins separated us from God. Sins can't be removed by your good deeds, but paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. And everyone who believes in him alone has eternal life. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. That's the good news. That's the victory. And Paul said, God chose you from the very beginning. That always blows me away. Before the world was even created, God had you in his heart and in his mind so that he would bring you to faith in Jesus. That's how much God loves you and wants you to have that victory. Paul also refers then to another piece of evidence when he says, and God brought you to this through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That word sanctifying means he set you apart. God chose you and he called you out of the world of darkness and unbelief into the world of the truth. And he gave you faith in that truth through the working of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't, it wasn't that you had something good going on in your life and God picked you. It wasn't that you were smarter than other people and have figured it out. No, it was God's spirit working in your heart that convinced you this is the truth. We have victory in Jesus, and it's just given to us. The victory's won. But Paul adds a little more to that message of victory. He tells us the result. He says, he called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. With that, he's telling us the end result of your faith is to share in the glory of God. Now we have his grace, and now we have his glory. Yes, now. Now that, that glory that God gives us is hidden in, in this life that's filled with troubles and sorrows. But we still have his glory, to be his children, his people under his love and with his blessing. But that glory will be revealed in its fullness when Christ returns. So powerful is that, that Paul, when he was writing to the Romans, said, I don't think it's worth comparing our present sufferings with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, he's saying this. You go ahead and you take up all, pile up all your troubles, all your sickness, all your sorrow, and you put it on a scale and it'll weigh it down. But he said, look at the glory that's going to be coming. And it's not worth comparing at all. Well, what is that glory he's talking about? A life that doesn't have the suffering and the sorrow and the pain and the loneliness and the troubles and the worry and the fear. That's all gone, he said. That's in the past. Now you have joys and blessings everlasting. He said that he will take our bodies on, through that resurrection on the last day and he will transform them to be like Christ's glorious body. So you can go ahead and you can pile up all your miseries and all your complaints now, but just compare them with the glory that God promises you and they all go away. So isn't it worth then knowing that you have victory 
and hanging on to that victory. That despite whatever you go through now, it can't change the fact that victory is won and it's yours. The other uh, night, on Thursday night football, they were advertising that they were going to do something special in the broadcast. That showing us the game was going to be done through what they call an aerial video view. If you don't know what exactly that's like, it's basically like you're watching the game as if you were watching a, a video game. In other words, you're seeing everything from the sky instead of some of the other normal camera shots that they do. So I thought, well, I'm going to see what that's like. So I watched for a little bit. I didn't watch the whole game. And you know what? It was no different. <laughs> it was still a football game. There was one team that was winning and one team that was losing. It didn't matter what the view of it was. It was still a game. Here's my point. Changing how you view things doesn't change the way things really are. In education today, a lot of emphasis is being put on science and math and technology because of the way our life is changing. And that's fine. But that isn't the end all to things. That may make our life better here, but it doesn't change the reality of things, which is this. We need to know and to use the gospel. We can have all the science and the math and the humanities that man can give us, and it can make our life better, and that's okay to learn that stuff. But without Christ, it's meaningless. It's kind of like taking a cup and saying, well, I'm going to have something to drink, and you pour your water in there, and you can drink it, right? Well, it's going to help you for the moment. But what happens if that cup is like this and has a big hole in it? You pour water in it, and it's just going to all come out. And an education without Christ is having a cup like that. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. It really can't solve things. But an education with Christ lets us see life from the perspective of we have his love and his blessings now, and there's a perfect life in eternity. So what is your view of your life now? Do you see a lot of holes in it? Do you see a lot of troubles? Does it seem like life and its blessings are just washed away, gone? Or do you see your life having been won by Christ and have value and purpose and meaning in Christ so that it is whole. The victory is won, and God has given it to you. View your life that way. And yet as we go through life, you know, we, we face some struggles. And there are attacks that are made on our faith. Simply put, there's a battle that's going on. The Apostle Peter described that battle when he said, Our enemy, which is the word Satan, that's what it means. Our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a lion, looking for someone to, not scratch, 
Not scare, but devour. The enemy's attacks on us are meant to destroy us, to take away that victory, and to take us away from God. You and I are the battleground, our hearts and our mind. Listen to how Paul gives us a view of life when he's writing to the Ephesians. He writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not the Democrats or the Republicans. Our enemies are not the liberals or the conservatives. It's not North Korea or Russia or ISIS. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's telling us we are in a spiritual battle for our heart, for our faith. Jesus made that evident too when he told that familiar story of the sower throwing out the seed, which he said would be the word of God. And some of that seed that fell on the roadside, birds came and ate it. And Jesus said, here's what I mean by that. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. He's simply reminding us the devil is out to take our heart away from God and to take the truth out of our heart. He does that also by attacking our minds, by what we're taught and how we think. Listen again how Paul describes that in Colossians 2. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He says, don't let people play with your mind. Don't let people trick you into thinking this way or that way because this is the way the world does it and it's fine. It'll take you away from Christ. Paul further said, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Did you hear how he described them? As people who had a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. People who would gather together like this for church. And Paul says, I'm afraid that somehow the devil and his cunning may lead you astray like he did Eve. That means we have to be on guard. Paul also said this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's reminding us there that this is a battle that has eternal consequences. He's blinding us to God. When you hear that description, you recognize just how powerful the devil is. He and his kingdom are the second most powerful thing in this world, and it's warring against us. But they are the second most powerful thing. There is one who is more powerful, 
and who is in us, and that is our God. And so Paul's words remind us of that as he gives us the battle strategy that we need to follow as we are in this fight for our faith. Here's what Paul said. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Stand firm. Stand firm on the truth. There is just one foundation. Don't be pushed off of it. Don't be pulled off of it. Don't get too close to the side and fall off of it. Stand firmly on it. Now, if you've ever ridden on a bus or, or a shuttle from the airport to the car rental place or, or on a train or the light rail, and if you had a stand, you know that when that vehicle is moving, it's kind of shaky, right? And you have to hold on to something, maybe a rail, so that you don't fall. And that's what Paul was saying. Stand firm on that foundation, but also make sure you're holding on. And one Bible translation put it well. Hold on masterfully to the teachings that have been passed on to us, which all keep us focused on Christ and his saving work. Hold on to that. He also urges us to be armor wearers. In the scripture reading we heard before, he spoke these words. He said, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And we just heard the kids and the teachers singing about that. Put on that armor of God. In, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul gave a bigger description of that armor. He talked about the helmet of salvation, having that truth that keeps us focused on Christ. The breastplate of righteousness that protects our heart, our faith, with the righteousness of Jesus, not my righteousness. Having that belt of truth around us to hold all the truths together. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God by which we can defeat those false teachings. And that shield of faith by which we can extinguish those fiery darts of temptation that Satan throws at us. And then have our feet protected with that gospel, that readiness for when Christ returns. We are to be armor wearers. You recognize this picture as uh, David and Goliath. When David, a young teenage boy, volunteered to go up against the giant, King Saul said, well, here, you better put my armor on and take my sword. And then the Bible describes him putting all this stuff on, and it was too big and too heavy and cumbersome, and he just couldn't do it. And so he took, off, took it off, and he said, you know what, I don't need any of this. I have my slingshot, but more than that, I have my God. And he said, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. In other words, all the tools and all the strategy that the world gives you. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. We need to wear the armor that God gives us. His truth. His word. That's what we use to fight the battle. 
Now looking at that picture again, if you look at Goliath, you see that little guy standing next to him. He was an armor bearer. That is, he would bring into battle the weapons that this warrior would use. As you see, he's holding it. Looks to me like Goliath should have been using it, but he didn't. But God also calls us to be armor bearers. That is, to take these truths of God and to use them for others. He writes, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Paul is being an armor bearer. That is, he's taking that truth of God and passing it on to others. And that's what we are to do too. Wear that truth to defend yourself, but bear that truth to pass it on to others. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're a friend, if you're a teacher, if you're a pastor, if you are a member of this congregation, you are an armor bearer here. All of us as Christians have the truth of God, and we are to take it and take those weapons and pass it on to others. That's what we do with our ministries here. Equip others with that truth to fight that battle. I saw this little uh, interesting tidbit of information this uh, past week, that in the year 2011, just 35% of American adults had a smartphone. Six years later, nine out of 10 adults have a smartphone. So it's not a matter of do you have a phone, it's do you have, what one do you have and what service do you have? Now, there was a lady in the last service who said, Pastor, I'm proud to be that number 10. I don't have a phone. But we all recognize that, you know, the, the benefits of and the value of having a smartphone. And we use them a lot. We have the armor of God. Are you wearing it? Are you using it to defend yourselves with the truth? Are you using it to defend yourself against temptation? Are you passing it on to others? Let's not leave the vulnerable unprotected. Let's pass that truth on to the generations that follow. Because the risks for doing so are high. They're eternity. A battle is on against us. The good news is the victory's been won. We have it. So let's fight that good fight of faith. Amen.